Lindsay Buziak was murdered on February 2nd, 2008, and this is her father's story. Hello. Hi, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Thank you for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for including me in your podcast, uh, Kelly. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the opportunity. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, I know someone that was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. Murder causes confusion and fear in communities. It certainly did for me. But you know what? I can't even begin to imagine the effect it has on families, on loved ones, on children. The sadness. The loss. I wanted to create a podcast that would give a voice to loved ones of murdered victims. Mourning the Murdered is that podcast and is created in remembrance of our victims. You will never be forgotten. The opinions expressed on Mourning the Murdered are not necessarily those of the host, producer, or its broadcasters. Sensitive topics will be discussed and are not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Saanich, British Columbia is a part of the Greater Victoria area in BC, Canada. The population in 2008 was right around 103,000. The name Saanich is derived from the Saanich First Nations, meaning emerging land or emerging people. Saanich is home to part of the University of Victoria and is gorgeous with its glacially topped rock outcroppings and its amazing amounts of water, including many freshwater lakes and marine shoreline. Saanich has long sandy shorelines along a number of ocean bays. Imagine yourself spending a glorious day at the beach or walking in nature along one of the marshy lowlands, playing a round of golf, spending a day enjoying one of many heritage walks or heading to the Canadian Forces Base to see the CFB Esquimalt Naval and Military Museum. And there is also the perfect place to see flowers at the Butch Art Gardens. Saanich also boasts the oldest school in Western Canada, established by Kenneth Mackenzie of Scotland called Craigflower Schoolhouse, formerly Maple Point School. Saanich has mild yearly climates, so it is a spectacular area for visitors and residents who can take advantage of this community all year long. Jeff Buziak was living in Terrace, British Columbia, working driving heavy equipment for the logging industry saving up money to go to study at university. Here, he met his future wife, Evelyn. Jeff went off to university in Saanich and earned a degree in psychology. He and his wife were excitedly anticipating the birth of their first child and couldn't be happier when on November 2nd, 1983, 
their precious bundle of love, Lindsay Buziak was born. She was the apple of her father's eye. So let's start back at the beginning. Uh, we're talking with Jeff Buziak, first of all, Lindsay Buziak's father. And we're going to start with uh, what was the day of Lindsay's birth like for you? Well, it was a fantastic day, of course. It was our first child and um, came to life. Never stopped coming to life from the day she was born. She was just the sweetest little girl. We enjoyed her thoroughly. And then three years later, of course, she had a baby sister. And we celebrated and uh, rejoiced and enjoyed starting our family. And how did she react to her sister being born? Oh, she was excited about having a baby sister. Yeah, it was just a great thing for them. They've been very close. Uh, they were very close the whole time until, of course, uh, Lindsay met her tragic ending. But uh, it's been very hard on her sister. As a young child, what was Lindsay like? She was uh, full of life, a very happy child, very lively very engaged in everything you were doing yeah she was fun she was fun she had good humor and she liked to be close to people yeah she was uh, still a wonderful child both uh, both her and her sister really really good kids being a guy I always dreamt of you know, having children that I could do all kinds of things with, and I'm quite an outdoors guy, and I like doing all kinds of activities. So <clears throat> I introduced um, both the girls to all kinds of things, from bike riding, rollerblading, playing ball, tennis, you know, all those sorts of things. We had a summer place at the lake, so of course they were very fortunate to be able to uh, learn how to water ski and do all the kind of lake activities. We had a sailboat as well, so and we camped with them. You know, we just did uh, we did great family things with the children, and you know, we had a good time with them. So very outdoorsy, close family you were. Yeah, we certainly were close. Uh, we were very fortunate that their a mom got to stay at home, so we were very blessed by that because I think that's a situation nowadays that can be challenging for a majority of people but uh, we we're very fortunate very fortunate that mom wanted to stay at home be a stay-at-home mom and a homemaker so that required me to work a little bit harder to have all the nice things in life yeah I was uh, I worked a lot came home for dinner every night and uh, we did things together as a family of course and spent summers at the lake Sounds like a lovely childhood they had, that's for sure. Oh, without a doubt, their childhood was fantastic. You know, I still giggle and tell the story all the time that I, our lake property was over an hour away from where we lived. You know, the girls and their mom would spend the majority of the summer at the lake. And I would, of course, not be able to because I was working. And I remember just, still laughing to this day that I'd come home and they would be there sprawled out on the couch watching cartoons and I'd be like hey what's going on and they'd go, oh you know 
we just had enough of the lake. We need a break from the lake. And of course, most other people are thinking it'd be a dream to be able to take time off and go to the lake. And I say, oh, okay. Oh, great. You know, love seeing you. How long are you going to be in town? And they oh, you know, maybe a few days. We just need a rest. We need a break from the lake. You know, that, those words still ring in my mind. That's hilarious. And, uh, of course, I would... You know, I think it was like it would be a day later I'd come home and they're gone. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd phone and say, oh, what happened? Oh, we missed the lake, so we're heading back out. (laughs) Yeah, and they had lots of friends because, of course, they had lake friends and then they had city friends as well. So, yeah, they, they, I was just, growing up for them was lots of fun. We never were lacking, so, you know, it was always good and their mom was, you know, very attentive to the kids, activity-minded, certainly wasn't just sitting around watching TV. They were doing activities and hiking and games and, you know, cooking and doing all kinds of different things, really enjoying themselves. And they, the friends like to, their friends like to come around to our place because, of course, it was lots of fun all the time with water fights and all those different things going on. So, yeah, they had a great childhood. Lindsay was known for her caring nature and was very popular. She was also a beautiful woman. And with her temperament and charisma, any profession Lindsay would have endeavored to pursue, she would have excelled at. Lindsay followed her father's footsteps and began a career in real estate. She had a cold call that came in from a couple wanting to see a house. Not any old house either. They wanted a luxury house worth a million dollars. As this was a cold call, Lindsay asked how they had heard about her. And she was told by this woman with an accent that Lindsay described as being a bit Spanish, but not really, that they had been referred. Lindsay had an uneasy feeling, so she told her dad about the call. He suggested she either didn't show it or have someone with her. Her boyfriend agreed he would be there. The showing was at 5.30. Her boyfriend was late, arriving only at 5.40. After waiting 20 minutes, he texted her to see if she was okay. Lindsay never read that text. This is the story of Lindsay Buziak's murder. And now tell me about the terrible day when you found out. How did you find out about uh, the fact that your daughter had been murdered? Well, I was called by their mom because at at that point I was living in Calgary and they still were in Victoria. Well, this younger daughter was living in the Cayman Islands, but Lindsay and her mom were still living in Victoria. So I received a call at about... 12 hours after she was murdered because I wasn't aware nobody contacted me and their mother called me very distraught woke me up because it was you know 5 6 a.m in the morning yeah it was just total devastation you just cannot imagine the shock and the pain that you immediately start going through it was just horrendous one of the most brutal experiences you could possibly imagine to get a phone call like that I, I uh, 
you know, I, I woke up and of course I was sitting on the bed and I stood up and I couldn't believe it. And then, you know, when it sunk in, of course I hit the floor and probably stayed there for a few hours. Oh, that, that's so terribly sad, terribly sad. Mm. The first story that Lindsay's father was told about what happened was that Lindsay's boyfriend and the friend that was with him showed up to the house late and saw people through the opaque window in the house. So he said they waited for 10 minutes in the driveway and then went around the corner to wait for another 10 minutes, not wanting to seem the interfering boyfriend even though Lindsay was expecting him due to her worries. Next, the police changed that story to say when the boyfriend and his friend arrived, they saw two people heading out the front door of the house. And when these two pulled into the driveway, the two people turned around and headed back inside the house. The boyfriend claims that he thought that what he saw was the start of the showing. But when people bolt back into a house, it is not the beginning of a showing, says Jeff, having 40 years experience in real estate. They sat for another 10 minutes and then pulled around to a side street. This is when the boyfriend texted Lindsay. But why did the story change that the police gave? The boyfriend realized something might be wrong and gained entry to the house when the person he was with went around back and saw the patio door was open, entered the house and let the boyfriend in through the front door while he ran upstairs finding Lindsay murdered in the master bedroom. Despite being told the woman was coming alone, Witnesses spotted a six-foot-tall Caucasian man with dark hair and a blonde Caucasian woman wearing a very distinctly patterned dress outside of the dwelling on D'Souza Place and then watched them enter the house with Lindsay. Nothing was stolen and Lindsay was not sexually assaulted. The aftermath devastating her family and now they had to start the process of uncovering what happened. Of course, as a parent uh, losing a child to homicide, you're, you're very distraught and you're very upset. And so you don't really know what's transpiring. The police seem to be doing something. So you're looking towards them for answers and resolution and some calmness. And that seemed to be there. They were interviewing. And, of course, I immediately went to Victoria when I found out. I got out there as soon as I possibly could. I flew out. So they wanted to meet with me right away and interview me. We did that uh, in under video and because I guess everybody's a suspect, so... I just remember being a little bit disgusted, but I understand that they were so concerned about, you know, getting me drinks and then taking my glass away. And they were so obvious they were, you know, getting my DNA, which yeah, I found distasteful and just kind of offended me a bit. But 
I understand it's part of their process. They have to look at everybody or see what's going on. So my immediate concern was, of course, who? Our other daughter was in the uh, Cayman Islands, so that was a huge concern to bring her home and how that was going to transpire. This young woman out working and she was murdered? She should not have had to be worried going about her business. She should not have had to feel scared showing a house. She was a real estate agent, a good woman doing her job. And two people took advantage of her. They asked her to do her job. These two deranged individuals had planned it. It is believed to have been a professional hit by people who have killed before. Well, shouldn't we call them serial killers? The police discovered that the phone number they had been using to communicate with Lindsay was a burner phone registered to an address that wasn't involved. Using the name Paulo Rodriguez, which is believed to be a fake name. The phone was activated the day before in Vancouver. They traveled across on the ferry, and then the phone was never used again after the final contact with Lindsay. This case is still unsolved after 12 years. Because at that point, you know, I was putting my faith and trust in police that they knew what they were doing and this was going to be resolved quickly and get some answers, see that justice is served so that we can mourn, try and make sense out of everything. But unfortunately, here we are 12 and a half years later with no justice, still mourning the loss of our sweet child. What happens with them is, from my observation, is they put a certain amount of effort into it right in the beginning and if that doesn't produce any results they're done like they told me and it's they used to use a term they probably changed it now because I've gone public with it called front loading so they throw a bunch of resources at murder and if they don't achieve any results that's it they're done cold case two reasons one their culture is so horrible now that uh, they're just not interested anymore. And that's proven by studies in university. Two is they do have a budget with a certain amount they can spend. So when they felt they've spent enough on one thing, that's it. That's terrible way to look at uh, murder investigations on their part, having a budget. Absolutely. Yeah. And they don't care. They don't care. They're All they're worried about are their holidays, their pay raises and promotions. The struggles at the beginning are so horrible and hard to bear and muddle through. And of course, I've been single since divorce, so, you know, I live by myself. So when I returned back to Calgary, I uh, luckily got some, had some advice before I left Victoria to get counseling. So I sought out, sought out counseling right away and continued with that for approximately six years on a one-to-one basis plus some group counseling to learn about homicide and of course I found out also at that time that there wasn't much out there for homicide. We had formed a homicide support group which was 
probably one of the first in the country. And so it was all a whole new thing. There isn't a lot of literature or textbooks or studies on the effects of homicide on uh, family members, friends and family members. So it's new ground. So, you know, it was a process that that I went through. And as a result of uh, my individual counseling and the group counseling, which was with the same counselor, some uh, a type of program was developed to deal with uh, homicide. And that went on to some public speaking engagements, which I was at, where I spoke at conferences of, you know, up to 400 people numerous times about the effects of homicide and how to cope and how to manage uh, that situation. Because really, you tend to get a whole bunch of advice from people, and usually it's uh, really bad cliches that hurt deeply and uh, anger you a lot. Things like, you know, God always has a reason, and time heals, and, you know, you have to move on, and those type of cliches that people say, you really just, you want to either spit at them, rip their throat out, give them a head butt, punch them in the face. But of course you don't. But it just hurts hearing that stuff because all you want to hear is, I'm sorry, I love you, and give you a hug. Basically, some combination of that. You don't have to say anything, just hug you. You understand. Humans understand. We don't need to hear some cliche or cure or stupid words from somebody who, yes, they're trying to be helpful and they're trying to be understanding. They just have no idea how much they're hurting. If they want to give some comfort to somebody, they know what not to say and what to do now. So that's really helpful. Yeah. So those I consider poison words along with you know, I understand what you're going through. We had to put our dog down last week. Oh, I can understand how you feel because my aunt died of cancer five years ago. Well, uh, as sad as I am to hear those things from them, they do, they have no idea how we feel. And to prove that point, it's statistically known over 40% of family members who have had a loved one murdered never recover. It's lifelong depression, medication, drugs, alcohol, uh, depression, suicide, no work, over 40%. The rest cope. And typically a good majority, it's drugs and alcohol and depression and medication. It's not a pleasant situation to be in. It's probably PTSD at its finest. And what what advice could you give to people that might be going through a tragic time to help them through the early days? What what would you say to them? Without a doubt, they need to seek counseling. Try and avoid medication, drugs, alcohol, if at all possible. I'm a very strong believer in psychologists. They don't prescribe drugs. Psychiatrists do. If you require medication, fine, I understand. Not everybody is able to keep it together in the beginning, but definitely counseling without a doubt. Counseling, and you need to seek out counselors who are experienced in uh, loss and grieving. 
So I strongly recommend to people is get counseling. And for my type of personality, and I certainly recommend it to anybody, do something that helps with your grieving. It gives you something to focus on. So whether it's a fundraiser for charity or the walk or, you know, starting a website to gather information that you can give to the police, do something as soon as you possibly can. It gives you a sense of worthiness and allows you to feel you're helping and doing something rather than just sitting around mourning. People have to try and get to grips with. It was really tough for me, but I came to grips with it real early, and it's a real tough thing for me to say. That is, the murder's not about me. It's not about you. In my case, it was about a wonderful 24-year-old young woman senselessly slaughtered. I looked myself in the mirror early on and said, what are you bumbling and sobbing about here, buddy? This is not about you. <laughs> this is about a wonderful young woman, your daughter. Now get off your butt and do something about it. For those that have a hard time with that, then you would recommend for them to just keep on going to counseling until they feel they're in a good place to be able to perhaps yes. get to where you are. It's all about managing murder. Don't let people try and tell you to get over it, to move on. Discard those people. They're not your friend. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool that if you could tell everyone you know about mourning the murdered, that would be so helpful to us and we would really appreciate it. You can let them know that we can be found on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and iHeartRadio. So be sure to download each episode and don't forget to like us on Facebook. This will really help us get more exposure. Thanks so much. And don't forget, tell a friend. A huge shout out to a new PayPal supporter. With your help, you continue to help us to create this podcast. So, Les, thank you. I would really like for this podcast to drop weekly so as many loved ones' voices can be heard as possible. Morning the Murdered have both Patreon and PayPal accounts. If you would be able to contribute to help us to keep the show going, we would greatly appreciate it and thank you in advance. You would get a shout-out on a future episode, and we would mail you a thank-you card signed by me. You can find us at Patreon, or for PayPal, send to morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you for your generosity, and now back to the show. It is such a devastating case. Her father is certain that Lindsay was murdered by these psychotic hitmen that were seen that day by several people going into the house with Lindsay before and again by her boyfriend. And he believes she was killed because of erroneous assumptions. It seems her murder was meant to be a message about the anger someone else felt toward Lindsay and that this murder was personal. 
Although these two monsters were paid to show how personal it was. Stabbing her to death. There are several theories floating around. One being that perhaps one of the people that was there that day involved in her murder was indeed the mastermind. It is clear to police that there was nothing in Lindsay's life that could have any link to why there would have been a professional hit put on her. She was not involved in any criminal activity. And the police looked seriously into that because of the way she was killed. She was absolutely not involved in anything criminal. And there was no domestic violence either. It is very hard, therefore, to understand why this could have possibly happened. And particularly in the way it did. Hitmen? Could it be that she had a friend who knew people that were involved in criminal activity? About eight weeks prior to her murder, Lindsay tried to contact a friend of her ex-boyfriend while on a visit to Calgary. On January 22nd, 2008, the largest drug bust in Calgary's history, and actually in Alberta's history, took place. And the friend was arrested as being a major participant in the illegal drug trafficking operation. It was believed that these people perhaps thought she may have been a police informant as she was murdered so soon after this. It has been very clearly proven that she was not though. Lindsay was not an informant. She never gave any information. Could her murder have been because someone thought that? What a horrible thought. Lindsay murdered because some drug dealer was wrong. But why then? They say it was personal. But it doesn't seem that there was anything in her life that would have made someone want to kill her. The heartbreak that this poor family feels still every single day, not having an arrest in Lindsay's case, no arrest. This is something that does not sit well with Jeff as it shouldn't. Why isn't someone arrested? It amazes me how many unsolved murder cases there can be. We think that murderers will be caught. We hope so. We don't want these criminals roaming around free, able to go and stab someone else to death again. This beautiful, caring woman, in the prime of her life, stabbed to death. Come on now, time to go and catch her killers. Killers of multiple people. They will kill again. And they killed poor Lindsay. Did you feel the police did a good job after the initial days? Well, you don't know what's going on the first little while because the police are very busy and they're not talking too much. And 
you have no idea. They keep assuring you that they've got everything under control and they know what's going on. You know, I kept asking what I can do and, you know, how can I help? And they just said, you know, let us do our job. And so that's what you do. You wait for police to produce some results because that is their job to investigate and solve crimes, arrest and charge people. Well, they haven't done that. They don't seem to be focused on doing that. So what happened, of course, was I tend to be a very keen observer with people. I have a university degree in psychology. Human behavior has been an interest of mine right through university to this present day. Uh, and I happen to work in a people business. And uh, I also mentor young men. I have a uh, very keen interest in human behavior. And uh, I know how business works uh, very well because that's all I've done my whole life. So um, I'm watching what's, what's going on. I consider myself a watcher. So I'm watching what's going on. And, you know, as things unfold, I'm starting to wonder what's really going on. But for the first year, I would say, at least, as a parent, you're so distraught. You're just so distraught. You're depressed, you're, you know, you name it. You just want to go home, curl up, and not see or talk or hear from anybody. Just leave me alone. So I watched and observed and believed in the system and the police, thinking that I'm in a, you know, advanced society here in Canada with a good justice system and a great police force. I began to see cracks in that. Certainly, the first year, I didn't pay too close attention, but second year, I was starting to pay attention because I could, one, started to learn things, and two, started to see that you know, there was a lot of confusion. Things weren't happening. I wasn't happy. Police really don't want to deal with you. They basically, they assign you a handler to just monitor you and keep you satisfied if they can and away from the action. For some people that might work. For me that does not work and I voiced that opinion a lot early on. But they begin to start treating you like a child with some arrogance on their part that, you know, they know best and you need to just go home and let us do our job. You have no idea how complicated this is. And that's not good things to say to somebody like me who's very action-oriented and I need to see what's going on. I need to find out what's happening, the direction, the, and the results. And we've had no results for 12 and a half years. Then I began to see that police were trying to trick you and deceive you, and that really started to bother me. Of course, I voiced that to them and said, don't treat me like a child, don't try and tell me false things or mislead me or con or connive me, then they would just start smiling at you because then they'd start to show their true kind of arrogance. Probably not a good thing for someone like me as well. I didn't take kindly to that. And so by year two, the situation was they called me in and said, you know, it was a cold case now. They finished their investigation. And there's nothing more they could do. 
that was it, and also that did a duty to inform on me, which means they inform you that your life's in danger, and I asked them to define that, and they said, well, there's a hit out on you. I said, oh, that's fine. Said, well, who wants to kill me? And they said, well, we can't tell you that because the Privacy Act. So that's when you start learning about the system protects criminals, not the innocent people, because that was the first shock for me. So I said to them, okay, so I'm walking down the street and a bad guy could be walking behind me ready to knife me or shoot me. And I don't know who that is, but you do, but you won't tell me. You won't protect the good guy, but you protect the identity of the bad guy who wants to kill me. And they go, well, that's how it works. I said, no, that's not how it works. That's crazy. That is so that's... shocking and upsetting to hear that. I mean, I, that's terrible. I was left with that. And then I said, okay, well, if it's a cold case, I'd already found out that when a case is declared cold, that the family and the media has access to the file. While I was sitting there, I asked them to go get the file, and um, I'd like it. And they said, well, you can't have it. And I said, yeah, I can, because you just declared it the cold case. So I want the file. And uh, they said, well, we're not going to do that. And I said, well, yes, you are. I'm going to sit here and wait. Go get the file. Bring it to me. By law, I have access to it now. The officer at the time in charge said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you go grab some lunch and then uh, come back after lunch and we'll decide how we're going to do this. Okay, fine. I went for lunch and while I was at lunch, they, he called and said, yeah, we've had a meeting here with the command triangle and decided that it's an active case. You don't have access to the file. Don't bother coming back. They kept it active since, so I think that was probably a learned situation for police forces across Canada that tend not to have make cases cold anymore because family and media have access to certain parts of the file. And, of course, police don't want that. They don't make them cold anymore. They won't declare them cold. They'll just say it's active. I started to uh, get a bit disgruntled with that way police were working after the second year and then I just became more observant and realized that you know we've allowed police to become sort of these demigods and they actually believe they are that they're superior to everybody else that's what I've experienced with Sandwich police and they if you challenge them on that they smirk which further proves that's how they think that doesn't bode well with me and of course we butted heads quite often and uh, my mandate to them was I just want somebody to speak to me tell me the truth speak to me like a man not a child don't give me the run around and don't give me cop talk and don't give me circle talk if you can't answer a question say I can't answer that question don't try and bamboozle me because I'm not a guy who gets bamboozled I see right through all that stuff. They had trouble with that up to this day. Where that finally led was uh, to this day, we don't uh, really interact. Two of the officers came to Calgary unannounced, visited me and threatened me to stop what I'm doing and uh, close down the website I have dedicated to uh, Lindsay's murder or uh, they would... Uh, discredit me publicly and destroy me. Oh my goodness. That is so that was, 
kind of the final straw for me. Well, that is absolutely horrible. So, I mean, obviously, well, not obviously, but I'm assuming you have a very difficult time now communicating with them to get information. How do you do that now? Well, you don't get information from police anyhow. There may be some people out there that have a wonderful relationship with police, but it's probably superficial at best. By law, they can't tell you a lot of details. I understand that. But also, they don't share anything with you, really. What they just repeat over and over is, we take this very seriously, and this is a high priority for us, and, you know, we're endeavoring to solve this. We're working as hard as we can, and we have officers dedicated to this file. And it's all bullshit. Over the years, I found that out because I've been very active. I work on Lindsay's Unsolved Murder every day. I do know what's going on. A lot of the times at the police department, and of course they're not as smart often as they think they are. I have police chiefs telling me that he's reassigning all the officers because he's not having them sit around with their feet up in their desk waiting for a confession. Well, those words in itself tell me they're not doing anything. They're waiting. Of course, I give them a big lecture about (laughs) your job isn't to wait. Your job is to investigate and arrest. Take a child and don't discipline them for 12 years and see what happens. <laughs> Out of control. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, the message, the psychological message in Sandwich is you can murder them because you'll get away with it because nothing's being done. Right. Nobody's arrested. Boys murdered the chick. They got away with it. So we wonder why murders increase and we have all these problems. Well, there it is. What about my daughter's murder? Well, I don't have time to work on that. Oh, my goodness. So how can they be actively working this case and taking it very seriously and it's a high priority? The head of the file up until not too long ago owns a trucking firm, is a millionaire real estate investor, developer, and a party guy. Hmm. The chief or the uh, lead investigator is a young man, new to detectives, municipal counselor in another district. He coaches minor sports. He's a school liaison for the municipality and the police, and he has a young family. I ask, when are you going to put some serious detectives on here, not part-time people? And they used to tell me it all the time. You know, people will break down. Eventually they talk. And I go, yeah, of course. Like, quit talking to me like a child. Go out there and make that happen. That's your job. They don't get that. How they've evolved is do some work. If it doesn't produce any results, let it solve itself. And how they allow it to solve itself, that's why the chief told me, I'm not having them sit around with their feet up on their desk waiting for a confession is either somebody confesses, somebody has a fight with somebody else, and somebody talks. And then they run in with that, make an arrest, and come out like they're heroes. We're heroes. You see, we always get our man. We've never given up on this. We've always, we'll work this till the last day. No, they don't. They don't. It's a total fog job. Police go around making friends with the criminals. They'll call it you know, setting up informants. 
but really they're out being friendly with criminals. Very true. That is very and true. Where's the public in all this? So as a loved one of a homicide victim, the best description I ever heard and modified for my own use is that if you put everyone on the school bus, the bad guys, the cops, the family, the friends, the judges, the lawyers, all that, put us all on a school bus. Well, guess who's driving the bus? It's the criminals. Hmm. They're driving the bus. And so what happens is people like me beat up the police, and I should. But the reality is we've allowed them to get to where they're at. We've allowed them to start to modify their culture to be where it is. We've allowed them to be unaccountable. We've allowed them to become these demigods. And we have to stop that. We have to say no. Do you know in Saanich, where Lindsay was murdered, and that's the police force, They've never hired a police chief outside of Saanich police force. So in other words, they always promote from within. It's insidious. It's bad. When Lindsay was murdered, seven senior officers retired the day before she was murdered. The police chief, one of them, during the investigation, the police chief's wife, was the executive assistant to the mayor and they planted spyware in the mayor's computer and harassed him. Oh my. The one of the head clerks at Saanich was first cousin close to one of a high ranking Hells Angels in the province. Oh. It's just disgusting what you find out. Yes. None of the seven senior officers that retired the day before my daughter's murder were called back to help out. And two of them were their senior investigators and, inter and interrogators. They were not called back. And why is that? Exactly. Why is that? They won't answer those questions. You know, I don't have to preach anymore. We're 12 and a half years, and... You'll get these excuses from people, and you'll get it from public members who drink the Kool-Aid the police spew out of their mouths. And that is, these things are very complicated. They take years and years to solve. And, you know, relationships have to break down. Eventually somebody talks. That is bullshit. That is a bunch of crap that we've been led to believe, that police, unfortunately, are now believing themselves they believe that, and they spew that publicly. Well, it's crap, because that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. You are public servants. So I explained to them, you work for a municipality. You're no different than the sanitation department, the sewer and water department, the parks department. You're just one of those departments. You're not special. You're like the garbage men and the lawnmowers. And the guys who dig up sewers. You're just one of those departments. Report. You need to report. And somebody needs to hold you accountable. What are you doing with this murder? When are you going to have it solved? How are you going to accomplish that? What are your timelines? And they can never meet, answer. <laughs> meet your goals or you're replaced. 
1939, the world was at war. Millions of people were dying. Hundreds of thousands of Canadian young men were sent to die in Europe to fight for freedom. Six years, that war was resolved. There was peace on earth. Six years. Wow. Six years. First World War II, six years. I'm 12 and a half years into a simple murder from a little girl in her hometown. 12 and a half years, and we got nothing. A world war solved in six years. What happens as a parent, of course, a loved one, your most significant stress in your life has not become mourning and the loss of your loved one. It's the police is your stress. And that is a terrible way to feel during a time like this. You, you, They should be on your side. Well, you should feel like they're 100% supporting you. Not right, being... and doing their job. Yes. And um, you should feel that they're your friend. And I call them now frenemies. And it's unfortunate because at one time, police were our friends. They were our protectors. They were people we went to when we were troubled. They were there to keep law and order and to comfort you that everything was okay. Now, they're not that anymore. They're our frenemies. Please help Jeff with a petition he has online. His daughter being murdered and the case still being unsolved. The way this heartbroken father feels the police handled this investigation. He wants to have it turned over to another agency. This petition needs to be seen by the Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farnworth, and the Attorney General, David Eady. They have the power, legislatively, to do something, but each one passes the buck to the other. You can simply Google Lindsay Buziak petition and you will find it. The spelling of her name, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-U-Z-I-A-K. Please Take the one moment it takes and sign it to help this father. You will find a link to this petition in our show notes. Is there any sort of ideas you would have on how they could do a better job? They need to be held accountable. What I've discovered over working this whole situation is they're not accountable to anyone. So if you try and approach the police board or the mayor, who's always head of the police board, to get some answers, they tell you, we can't get involved in day-to-day -day policing. You have to talk to the police chief. So then you go to the attorney general, who's supposed to be the top cop in the province, and they give you the same line. We can't get involved in day-to-day -day policing. You have to talk to the police chief. So in BC, they have a minister of public safety supposed to be in charge of the police. And they say, give you the same line. Can't get involved in day-to-day -day policing. Have to uh, talk to the police chief. And the police chief just either refuses to talk to you or just smiles. So you learn they're not accountable. Well, certainly in Lindsay's case, 
99% of the public know who did it, but seems the police can't figure that out. And they use the excuse, we need a confession, we don't have enough, and um, people need to hold police accountable. Don't be satisfied with what they tell you, whatever it is they tell you. They're going to tell you, we're close, we're working on it, we know what's going on, we're going to have this resolved. You want to hold them accountable. You want to say, I want to report. When are you going to arrest? Who are the suspects? You need to just be constantly grilling the police. Don't allow them to bamboozle you, because that's what they do. The more you pressure them, the more they'll tell you, oh, it's really critical time right now, and, you know, we need to just really keep this quiet. I've been hearing that for 12 years. Right, yes, that's uh, a terrible time you've gone through for the past 12 years. That uh, That is for sure, and I really hope they wake up and actually start to get out there and solve this case for you and for Lindsay and for the rest of your family. Absolutely, for women. For women. For the community. This was a young woman working who got killed. So the message out there right now, she pisses you off, kill her. You'll get away with it. If people want to participate, I hold a walk every year, February 2nd, in Victoria, B.C., 10 a.m. We walk for justice. I welcome everybody. I've been doing that for 10 years now. A public walk, February 2nd, which is murder day, 10 a.m uses a pseudonym and they use false email addresses but they voice their opinion right and they feel comfortable doing that yeah and that's important to say so you would that's very important and i think that's being eroded and we need to protect that at all costs Mm -hmm. absolutely so for the petition uh for people listening Please sign it and just Google Lindsay Buziak petition. And yeah. can you repeat again your website, please, so that people can get on there and comment and read as well? LindsayBuziakMurder.com Perfect. Thank you so much. That's, uh, that's great. Thank you so much for your time today, Jeff. I know you work tirelessly every day to solve your daughter's murder. So please keep in touch and let us know when you have any updates, okay? I certainly shall, and thank you very much for considering me for your podcast. I appreciate it. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality... When someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain But surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones 
ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.